Hello and welcome to the Filmmakers Podcast. This is a podcast where we talk filmmaking, from indie film to studio films and everything in between. How to get them made, how to make them and how to try not to F it up, in our very, very humble opinion. Today, we're talking about working with directors and how to prepare to be on set from an actor's point of view. I am Giles Alderson, co-writer and director of the psychological art house horror feature film The Dare, which is released next year, World of Darkness feature documentary and producer of horror comedy Serial Killer's Guide to Life. Our regular hosts Andrew Roger and Christian James are filming, but actor and producer Dan Richardson is here direct from hosting the Remembering Rhinos charity event at the Royal Geographical Society for the Born Free Foundation. How do you remember all this? I don't oh, know. Oh, yeah, I've got it written down. Right. We are here at VoiceOver Soho Studios today, a delightful place with five VoiceOver recording studios. These VoiceOver studios in London have been designed and purpose-built as voice recording and audio post-production facilities. They deliver broadcast-ready mixes for commercials, films, documentaries, TV series, radios, trailers, animations, video games, ADR, and much, much more in any format, direct to your email, ready for download immediately after the session. All in the comfort of their five studio facilities across two sites in the centre of London, Soho and Fitzrovia. We're in here now, Mark. It's amazing, isn't it? It is amazing, yeah, yeah. And I'm even more amazed at your ability to remember all of that. Thank you. <laughs> Let's see why. Yeah, that's why. Right. So, ah, uh, yes, the cheat sheet. Yeah, the cheat sheet. <laughs> so head to voiceoversoho.co.uk or call Peter saying the Filmmakers Podcast sent you, which he will be over the moon to get your calls just generally, just ask him how he is. That's it. Call him up. How are you, Peter? How are you? What's going on? But if, you want going? A, if you want a studio, book this. We are absolutely delighted for today's guest. He needs no introduction, but I'm going to give him one anyway. Ugh. He's best known for his role in the television series Our Friends in the North and films such as Fever Pitch, Rock and Roller, Body of Lies, Sirania, The Young Victoria, Sherlock Holmes, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, the list goes on. Uh, Kick-Ass, Sunshine, Green Lantern, Zero Dark Thirty, Robin Hood, John Carter, The Imitation Game, Welcome to the Punch, and most recently, Six Days and The Kingsman. Ladies and germs, the Filmmakers Podcast welcomes massively Mark Strong! Boom! Happy to be here, happy to be here. Thank you for that intro. That's very kind. Thank you very much, I wrote it myself. (laughs) (laughs) so look this podcast is all about helping people get off their asses and make films filmmakers actors producers how they do that so we try and help them in any way we can and support Mm -hmm. them so look let's start with how you got started in in the business Mm. as an actor Mm because you were studying law right yeah i did law first because i thought that's what i wanted to do and i was lucky to realize that uh, it was dry boring not what i wanted to do so i perversely (laughs) chose the diametric opposite and and became Mm. an actor everybody thought i was mad quite rightly how come what reason why why just just i knew that it was very important to choose something in life that you wanted to do and as i was doing law and i was doing it in munich university would you believe in german just mm. to make it even more complicated there was a group of people next door doing theater workshops every day on my way to the to the lecture hall f- yeah. for the law uh, seminars which were incredibly boring these guys <laughs> seemed to be having so much fun that i joined in there one day to go went went in and had a look and and they explained that they were just doing workshops and they were working on a piece of text and they were actors and I had no people in my family who were actors or were in the theatre or made films or did anything like that and it just I literally just in that moment went okay I want to do this and then just stuck with it ever since when was this how long ago was this this would have been 1981 
I did theatre for about 10 years and then I got into, you know, TV through mm-hmm. our friends in the north. And this industry does seem to consist of getting a break. Mm-hmm. So this might be relevant to your listeners Definitely, as well, that yeah. you, you need something really that gets you noticed. Um, and then you have to capitalize on that with something else. And that's why there's so much luck involved in this industry. Um, it's not a meritocracy, certainly not if you're an actor, because it's all subjective. People decide whether or not they like you. Film is slightly different in that if you make a good film that everyone goes to see, the chances are you'll get to make another one. But mm-hmm. having done theater and then TV... I made a conscious decision. I wanted to be in movies. I wanted to make film. And funnily enough, all those guys you mentioned from Our Friends in the North, or rather the the program you mentioned, Daniel Cray, Christopher Eccleston, and Gina McKee were my co-stars, I suppose. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And when that show finished, I went back to the theatre, and they were all kind of unemployed for about Hmm. 10 months to a year. And I felt really sorry for them until I realised that they were actually making a conscious decision to wait for movies. So they then went off and made movies. I think Gina worked with Michael Winterbottom. Daniel Craig went off to work with John Mabry in Make Love is the Devil. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't know what Chris did, but I, I... I suddenly thought as I was there doing my theatre play every night, wow, I, I, I want to do that. Mm. So I turned everything down for a while. Right. And then yeah. Syriana came along, you mm-hmm. know, this tiny, pretty much one or two scenes in a film directed by Stephen Gagan with mm-hmm. George Clooney about the Middle East. And almost at the same time, I got offered a really small part in Oliver Twist, the Roman Polanski yes. was directing. Mm-hmm. Totally different parts. One was a third generation Lebanese Muslim. The other one was a sort of ginger haired, top hat wearing, buck toothed loon. Mm-hmm. Um, and the interesting thing was, they came out at the same time. Both relatively small parts, but I got a call from the Cohen brothers to go and meet them because they'd seen these two films and they didn't believe that that was the same actor. I love it. Fantastic. That. And that's kind of Range. how I got going, really. Mm-hmm. Right. Amazing. Yeah. Did you make a conscious decision? As is it? Is there some reason why you chose film over theatre? Yeah, and it's interesting you should say that because I had a debate just very recently with my my wife, who's a TV producer and does produce films, about what the balance now is between TV and film. Back then, you wanted to be in the movies because television was standard stuff. You know, it fed the box. Mm-hmm. It was okay. We were making a lot of uh, Dickens, you know, around Christmas time. Yeah, Prime Suspects, stuff that was brilliant. But, yeah, yeah, but it absolutely. was very much TV and, and, yeah. and film seemed to be where the real invention was going on. So back mm-hmm. then, I think I wanted to be in movies because I felt it was a much bigger canvas. Simple as that. Yeah. Nowadays, I think things have slightly changed. They have. Really seriously changed, hasn't it? Especially yeah. in the States. Yep. TV, I mean, that's what, you know, it's the writers and the actors seem to have gravitated towards TV now because of the, well, you got that that huge breadth of time and space to explore stories and characters and everything else that goes with it, haven't you, with a, with a TV series. And look at the names involved in TV these days. It's it's Anthony Hopkins and mm. Matthew yeah. McConaughey. And but you are right, because you've got time to <clears throat> develop that character. As in a film, mm. it's it's beginning, middle and end. There it is. Sure. Where TV, well, that could go on for two series, three yeah. series, up to even longer, right? Forever. It's, not, it's not just the content either, but it's, mm. it's the way we watch it. You know, I, I've watch, got a son right? who's very happy watching movies on his phone, yeah, on a tiny screen. And I keep trying to say to him, these films have well, been made for the big screen. Yes. That's where you've got to go and watch it. Mm. But him and his mates, really happy to watch it on a small screen. Mm-hmm. Television screens in our homes have become amazing. You know, mm. projectors are now affordable mm. and you can get amazing sound. So the experience you can have watching a movie in your own home you know, can even be better than it can be in the cinema if you're sitting next to someone who's opening a bag of crisps, for example. Oh, which is so annoying. You know? Yeah. So the way we watch film and, and uh, has really been very important in dictating 
the power, if you like, of film and TV. Also, the the, the kind of incredible costs of making movies—they mm. not just making them, but then distributing, and uh, you know, finding the money for the advertising. The and marketing all that. is a huge part of making films, and it's something we talked about quite a lot mm. on the podcast. How hard it is for indie filmmakers to then go, "Oh, I haven't got a budget for marketing," sure. and how important it is to put that in your budget at the very beginning mm-hmm. to make sure you can get it out there and get people to see it. Otherwise, you've made a great film and. It's on your mum's shelf, and it's so important to do that. Um, but yeah, like you say, TV's a bigger medium, and a lot of people I know now are starting to write for TV and going, well, hang on, why can't I do this as well? Mm, yeah, It's harder to make films, it seems mm. now. TV seems not necessarily easier, but if you get in there, well, it opens a lot of doors. It's a strange phenomenon, isn't it? Because we were talking about this in an earlier episode where mm. it's, it is harder to make film, and you, it seems like it's it's now become this one extreme or the other where you've got DSLR filmmakers making movies for 10 grand mm-hmm. or you've got 250 million dollar budget movies that seems to have sucked up all of the the big studios and nothing in between there is of course stuff in between but of it's course. interesting how it's got this amazing contrast between the two ends of the spectrum mm. but a lot of those films like you say the 250 million ones they're made for the big screen but like you say our kids will watch it on their yeah. phones they'll yeah. watch Thor they'll watch these things on their phones yeah and you go but but imagine it on the big screen with the sound and so content popcorn. is all, isn't it? I it mean, is, yeah. because you can make a 250 million superhero movie, but mm. if it's not very good, sure, you'll make a load of money, mm. but you won't earn any respect. People won't really like it. And if you're a big studio, you're in the business of making money. But most indie filmmakers and most people who love film are in it for the art. Mm-hmm. And that is a constant balance that you have to decide which side you're on. You know, it's like a it's like a fence or a blade if you like one side is art one side is commerce and you mm-hmm. have to kind of choose which path you're going to go down i mean kingsman for example just as a, a mm-hmm. case in point i think it costs 100 million or something i can't even imagine what the advertising or the distribution or the marketing budget sure, must have been because sure. i've just been to south korea and china we're going to japan you know, we traveled all over the world they've paid for all that exactly yeah it's all Hotels paid for but not just me you've got people driving the cars you've got assistants mm-hmm. you've got the actual hotels you've got you know, literally hundreds of people involved in each of these countries. Mm. So it's a, it's an enormous amount of money. But then it's made something like 400 million. So they're all happy they can make their money back. Exactly. But small filmmakers, mm. I mean, you can't really see yourself in that category at all. Studio pictures seem to have become something of their own now. And they seem to be raiding, you know, the Marvel DC world mm-hmm. or the world of, uh, I mean, I suppose Kingsman is Kingsman from is a, now. a comic. Mm-hmm. So it's that world. Um, the quality movies are the smaller movies that are being made. But you're right, the middle ground of 80, 70, 80, 90 million, they're, they're very, very rare. Yeah. Um, so I think it's content. If you make a good film, you've just got to kind of do your best to do that and try and get it out there. Mm. Yeah. Get it to the right people. Yeah. I just want to jump back a little bit, talk about Fever Pitch, because it was yeah. one of your sort of earlier breakout, uh, supporting leading roles. Yeah. And it was obviously about Arsenal, which is obviously a club you really support. Mm. Um, how, how was that? And so first, actually, it's the first time you're working with Colin Firth as well. Yeah, yeah. And you've worked with him quite a lot, which is fascinating. Yeah, bizarrely, yeah. This time. Mm. I mean, back then, I take it you were auditioning for stuff? Yeah, I think I'd gone up for it because they knew I was an Arsenal supporter or maybe I was just in the frame to play a part in that. I think I might even have gone up for the lead right. with my agent knowing I was an Arsenal supporter. Uh, mm. And when I got there, no, that's it. They, 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 My agent put me up for it thinking, well, he loves football. He'll be right for it. I got in there and I met Hornby mm-hmm. and uh, he didn't believe I was an Arsenal supporter because obviously every actor who'd come in, they'd say, who do you support? They said, well, Arsenal, because they yeah. wanted the job. Sure. Um, but I actually had a photograph. I had a paperback of Fever Pitch, mm-hmm. which has a kid in an Arsenal kit doing a throw-in yeah. in what looks like his mum's garden. I have virtually exactly the same 
photograph from my youth when I was about eight yeah. in my kit doing a throw-in in my mum's garden. So when I got recalled, I took it in and I showed it to them and said, look, there, there's the proof. proof me. Yeah, nice. And were you wearing an Arsenal shirt at the time? No, no, I didn't go oh. that far. <laughs> but we got on, you know, and they yeah. knew that I knew about the club and I suppose they just thought, you know, if they, I think they cast Colin at that stage. They needed somebody who was a believable supporter mm-hmm. because Colin might have been a movie actor yeah. who could play a supporter, but they needed somebody who was. So I think I supplied that element. And mm-hmm. for me, it was art meeting life. It was the best job. I remember when I got the Damned United, it was the same thing with Tom Hooper, sat there in the audition room with Tom Hooper, and he was grilling me about football. He knows nothing about football, by the way, absolutely nothing. And the reason why I got the role, apparently, was because I played football, I loved it, I was passionate about it. I think sometimes it does make a difference, doesn't it, when you sat there with directors and they sort of go, okay, prove it. Why on earth they give him that job, though, when he doesn't know anything about football? There you are, that's the film industry. I know, that is the film industry. That happens so often. It does, because Michael Sheen loves football and he's very good at football. Have you ever played with Michael? No, no, no. He's he's a really good footballer. In the film, he boots one in the top corner. He did that every time, every take. Oh, really? Yeah, chest control. But he's not a footballer. Well, he, he had trials for Arsenal. Oh, he is. He's that good, is he? He's that good. No, oh, that's okay. what I mean. Sorry, he's I misunderstood. I thought ah. he was an uh, average footballer. No, 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 he's okay. a good footballer. Yeah, oh, right. no, he's a really good footballer. And then you sort of went on to do, well, speaking of football, really, you went on to do Elephant Juice with Sam Miller, who yes. we play football with. And yeah. he was on the podcast, I don't know, about five, six episodes ago. Do oh, check right, that out okay. with Sam Miller. It's fantastic. He talks about directing for TV. Um, how was that experience doing Elephant Juice? Yeah, working with Sam was brilliant because he's just a lovely guy. As I've known him now for years, as you have, and mm. he's just a really you want to be on set with people that you like and he's one of those and it was a sort of fascinating film about various different characters i thought you know it really intrigued me reading it and making it was amazing and that was that was again just another another tiny step into the world of movies for Mm. me so when was that moment where you 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 realized that things were changing for you because you sort of had a really strong period after that you sort of kept working you just work kept coming for you and Hmm. and essentially playing some brilliant diverse roles when was the moment where you went, I might have to audition here or I'm getting offered something? What was the change? Well, that's an interesting question. I don't really know because I don't see um, f- acting careers. I don't know what it's like. F- perhaps the same is true of directors, but they're very rarely linear. You know, you like I said, it's not a meritocracy. You don't tend to do something that's good and then get something better, 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 better until you win an Oscar. Mm. It doesn't really work like that. It tends to kind of go up and down. You have quiet periods and busy periods. And all you can do really is gravitate towards the best work. That's what I try and do, the quality work. But Mm -hmm. obviously also as I've got older, you have to balance it. You have to do movies that will pay your bills Mm -hmm. as well as movies for no money at all that you do because you love them. Mm. I don't think to answer your question, I think there was a moment where I thought, oh, things are changing. But there certainly did seem to be a moment where I joined the film club. Mm. because over here you're in the theatre club the TV club or the film club and we can move between them unlike in America it's not quite so easy but once you're in one you're considered to be part of it so I started to get films because I had made films I'd been in films and I was also lucky in that I I wasn't a leading man I was a character actor Mm -hmm. and uh, that meant you could cross fertilize all over mm. the place. You know, you weren't just in a queue with all the other leading men for the leading role in a movie. Mm. You, there was tons of character parts that you could play. So I got to do quite a lot of stuff. Yeah, it's mm. fantastic. Let's yeah. talk about working with directors then. Because you've worked with so many, I've listed, obviously we talked about Roland Polanski, Danny Boyle, Ridley Scott a few times, Guy Ritchie, uh, Catherine Bigelow, Matthew Vaughan a few times. What is it that you find when working with directors? What's What's important what what's the connection for you that's that's a very good question that's what it's all about Mm -hmm. um 
without wishing to name drop, I did a film with Leonardo DiCaprio and asked him how he made his choices as an actor, and he said it's all about the director in movies, mm. all about the director. He, he will watch a director's previous movies, he'll watch his stuff, and he'll make a decision on the basis of that because he realises mm -hmm. that directors are the people that take the raw footage or digital content or whatever into the editing room and make the movie. So you have to trust a director. Mm. So not only trust him that or her that they can make good films and tell a story using pictures mm -hmm. but also that they're your mate behind the camera that's really important on mm -hmm. set when you're shooting day to day you want somebody who's looking at the monitor who can say to you no no, no don't do that that's yeah. that's wrong or i need a bit more there that i can't see what you're doing or just calm that down because you're over the top mm -hmm. whatever the comment might be it's basically that you need somebody who will guide you because you can't see what you're doing all you can do is rely on your instinct which is telling you to perform in a particular way or look in a particular way or sound in a particular way but you need somebody to tell you who's looking at the monitor what's working and what isn't and you can't always find that funny enough with directors and that's actually why i've probably worked with guy ritchie and matthew vaughan a few times is because they're they've become friends and i trust them and they're good at that they're good at telling you what works and what doesn't they're not hung up with film school um, hang-ups like how you're supposed to, sure, in inverted yeah, commas, speak yeah. to actors. Mm. They'll just literally say, no, 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 that's shit. <laughs> Great. Don't do <laughs> that. Do this. And you're like, Great. okay, that's what I need to hear. It's invaluable, isn't it? You yeah. can't, you can't yeah. put a, price, a, a value on that. It's absolutely fantastic. So with that criteria in mind, do you have a, a director that you would be absolutely itching to work with that you haven't yet? Um, well, the, the director I wanted to work with more than anything was Peter Weir. I thought oh, Peter Weir is yeah. just such an amazing director. He's mm -hmm. done such a varied kind of group of movies, you know, The Truman Show, Master and Commander, Picnic at Hanging Rock, Hang Rock what Missing. A mm -hmm. I mean, it's just an absolute incredible list of, of, of amazing films and all different. And, and, and different authorial, you know, um, control as well. You, you would never, if you put that in front of somebody who knew nothing about film and asked them if that was the same director, that you can't see anything in there that's a sort of suggests it's him he manages to immerse himself in each one and but i did a film with him called the way back but it wasn't successful it didn't work for mm. some reason i don't know why he's a lovely man as well yeah. he's a, he's a real he's an australian guy i remember once he he tried to explain to us how he wanted a scene to feel and he showed us a bit of documentary footage of a snake moving across the sand was wow. the, with with a with a soundtrack to it and that was the best way he could describe to us what he wanted the scene to feel like and it kind of worked you you got a sense of the feeling of what he wanted from it. Yeah, as actors, surely you go, oh, okay, I understand that character, I understand an animal. Let mm. me see if I can get into that slithery thing. That's, yeah, that's yeah. one. Yeah, and it was the music as well. He'd often mm. he'd often uh, play you music to explain to you how he wanted a scene to feel. Mm. It's like Thomas Alfredson, the Swedish director, who um, I did Tinker Taylor, Soldier Spy with. I remember mm. Gary Oldman and I were about to do a scene, and he said, um, and Gary's remembered this, because actually I've cribbed this from him mm. mentioning it to somebody I'd forgotten, but Thomas said... He, Gary says, you know, what, what do you want? How do you? And he said, I want it to, I want the scene to smell like damp tweed. Nice. <laughs> That's great. Okay. Yeah, lovely. And you sort of think, eh? And then you think, oh, okay. Mm -hmm. All right. No, I kind of get it. He really wanted to soak that whole film in a 70s Britain that he remembered as a young Swedish boy coming to London, which was a sort of tobacco stained, yeah, damp, tweedy kind yeah. of world. He's seen yeah. it from an outsider and he wanted to see that on the screen. Yeah. You know, I think yeah. that that is such an insightful way of looking at the business because one of the key, key things we're talking about in filmmaking is how do you get 
and there's going to be so many filmmakers that will hear this and think, oh, yeah, exactly, what is that? You've got an idea in your head, and if you could just download that image mm-hmm. onto a screen, it's that that you're trying to achieve. Mm. And how do you do that? Well, you come up with things like the smell of damp tweed or yeah, yeah. the sound or of music. this piece of yeah, music yeah, exactly. or yeah. this snake slithering or the combination of those things because mm-hmm. that's the eternal thing, isn't it? I, I was walking around yesterday, walking my dog yesterday. I've got a dog now. Yeah, <laughs> Olive, we know. Oh, Olive. Um, <laughs> And, and, I, and I was just listening to some fantastically cinematic music, and it made me think, oh, I've got to make a movie with this kind of music. Mm-hmm. It, I haven't got any particular idea in mind, but the music made me want to make a movie. Mm-hmm. So it kind of it kind of emphasises that fact, doesn't it? Because yeah. any of the senses that we can bring into it can really help to... Absolutely. Mm. Yeah, and, and, I, and I've worked with directors as well who are nervous about talking to actors. Mm-hmm. Because obviously directors cover a wide spectrum. You can get people coming from the theatre who really pride themselves on the fact that they can talk to actors and, and help them with, with dialogue and mm-hmm. all that, but know nothing about where to put the camera sure. or, or about lenses. And on the other side, you get people who know everything about the know, depth of field yeah. and lenses and all that no idea how to speak to actors and also slightly terrified of it because they think there's some sort of technique. Mm. But again, to guys listening or girls who are making movies, there, there is no technique. You just need to try and communicate to the best of your ability because actors are very receptive. They want to do the thing well. And so if you can explain it to them in the best way possible, however that may be, you'll only ever win them over. Mm-hmm. The worst kind of director is the one who comes in and just thinks they know it, they know it all, telling everybody what to do. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not a great person to work with that's a horrible feeling isn't it it is you think well, why, did, why did you get me in to do this you could have just taken the first guy you saw in the street well, and just said here mimic this yeah it's the worst it's, feeling it's in the world horrible isn't it someone says oh it? just do it like this gives you a line reading which mm, doesn't work yeah. but I, I can understand that people would be scared of actors from they hear a lot of stories of actors kicking off on set. Yep. There's a lot of books about that kind of thing. You know, I'll be in my trailer type yeah, thing. Yeah. You sort this out. And actors can take over the ones with names. And I suppose that's why you want to work with good actors, strong actors who actually respect and there's that whole mutual respect. Yeah. What's the best way for a director to work when they first come on to set? Talk us through from your opinion and what's happened with you. The best way for them to approach something and the worst way. I think if you come on and you're anything less than honest you're in trouble. If you come on throwing your weight around when you don't know what you're doing, people Mm. will smell that. If you come on, uh, you know, pretending to be humble and, uh, but actually forcing everybody to do what you want, people can smell that. I think the best thing is honesty. It's about, okay, we're here. We're trying to tell a story. Um, Mm. Confidence is always really good. You know, Mm. I did a film with John Madden. He controlled the read through. He was always very, uh, on set he'd explain everything to everybody he'd get the actors in we'd rehearse a little bit when that was done he'd get the cameraman in ask him where he want to put the camera and what shots he want to do then he'd get the rest of the crew in mm-hmm. explain what we were going to be doing and that is a very comfortable way to work because then everybody knows what they're doing they're all on the same page mm. um so i i would just say you know uh, confidence yeah. in a director is kind of what you need but not that kind of confidence that makes you realize that they're they're actually terrified and throwing their weight around. Sure. Mm. Yeah, I know that, that makes sense. And do you like to um, block it out first? You know, it's similar to rehearse it. Do, do you prefer that way or sometimes you just like to come in cold? Right, see, again, know. actors are all different. I'm really envious of the ones that I hear about who just come in and want to throw it around, you know, mm-hmm. make it up on the spot, sure. do their own thing. And, you know, it might take me over there if I want to do this. or that. I'm much more meticulous than that. I do my preparation and, mm, uh, when I come in that. and do a scene. Yeah. Well, you know, if I have a, a script and scenes to, uh, with lines to learn, I will, in my own mind, uh, prepare that in the way I think it should be done. I think I'm intelligent enough to understand a scene when I read it, what the purpose of the scene is within that movie. Mm -hmm. 
So I can't, I learn my lines, I come in, I hit my marks, I say my lines, and I try and do it to the best of my ability. Mm-hmm. Having said that, I did a film with Sasha Baron Cohen, which was almost all improvisation, this mental movie called Grimsby. Grimsby, yeah. Uh, yeah, which is, which was just actually probably the hard one of the hardest things I've ever done because you turn up every day and there wouldn't be a script. You'd have to just make it up. And so from being somebody who was very meticulous mm. about the way they worked, I had to literally go to the other end of the spectrum and leave it all at home and come in and just do whatever came about that day on set. Okay. Um, both ways work, to be honest. So it's really just for the individual to decide what, what helps mm. them. Mm. Mm. What's the um, what's the what's with the whole playing bad guys thing? Well, that that <laughs> yeah. Well, you, you like that? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I think initially it was probably because um, well, the funny thing, the first one I played, uh, I think I may even if it was was a thing called The Long Firm that I did on yeah. BBC Two. It's four parts. And you were what, you were BAFTA nominated yeah, for yeah, that, yeah, right? Yeah, it was a great yeah. role in a great yeah. thing, and it was Jake Arnott's novel, which mm-hmm. was adapted into four parts by the BBC. And I had to work so hard to get that part. I knew I wanted to play it, but they didn't have the confidence that I was, could play dark enough, tortured enough, strange enough. Because this guy is a, he's a gay gangster in the sixties. He, he, you know, he shoves red hot pokers down people's throats, but he loves Judy Garland. You know, he's, he's kind of really (laughs) complicated. He's really complicated. And, um, they honestly I had to fight and the producer had to fight to, to get me that part because the powers that be were like no no he can't do it anyway then I did it and was as you say very you know gorgeously BAFTA nominated mm. whatever that means um, and <laughs> means you're recognised by BAFTA well you get recognised but I don't think it means you know the who's best element of it all no, I'm, I'm sure. very suspicious of but uh I like that. I, I like that you said that. That's really because I agree. Because mm. it's like you started out saying it's a subjective thing, isn't it? It's not. Yeah, yeah. So it's like it's like me saying, well, actually, blue should be your favourite colour because that's mine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's weird, right? It's yeah. kind of a weird thing. But sorry, carry on. I yeah. So, so, and it worked basically. And then from then on, I, I got offered a lot of baddies. I have to say, they're they're great fun to play because obviously you can't be a baddie in real life and I'm not a baddie in real life no, so in a nice way guy. you get to sort of mm-hmm. exorcise lots of demons you get to behave in a way that you would never behave in the street <laughs> and you get the best lines and the best costumes and and you know yeah. and also you don't have to carry the movie you know you're not you're not the I mean actually the hero mm-hmm. has to what throw a punch kiss the girl mm-hmm. crack a joke yeah and it's pretty much the same in every film yeah baddies are all much more kind of interesting and uh there's so much more you can do with them in fact i'm I'm in talks at the moment to go and um do one in uh next year which is the archetypal comic book baddie he's called um, dr savannah and he's in a film called shazam which was originally a comic book in 1940 Mm -hmm. and was called captain marvel Mm -hmm. and it's a story about a, a 13 year old boy who, when he says the word Shazam, turns into a superhero, a la Superman. He has a big red costume with a gold lightning flash across the front. And he's Captain Marvel. But I think DC bought the property and therefore couldn't call him Captain Marvel, so had to change the name of the character to Shazam. But he has a nemesis, this guy, Dr. Savannah, who who, who embraces the seven evil spirits, and they're all um, sucked into a small globe eyeball shaped piece of glass that smacks into his eye so he has this electric kind of eye full of evil spirits that can fire 
electricity out of it and stuff. Has to wear sunglasses to hide. You know, I mean, proper old school, mad, mm. evil scientist kind of character. You don't get that when you're playing the good guy. No, no, no way. You know, it's just it's just way more fun. There's so much more depth, right? I yeah. mean, yeah, you can check out the backstory, go where you want with it. Mm. I think that's great. Talking about it, let's talk Kickass. Working with Matthew Vaughan there, um, that must have been unexpected, like Kingsman breakout that sort of came from nowhere. I mean, uh, your death in that is incredible. Oh, you have thanks. some great movie deaths, by the way. I've well, that's li- another thing, you see, when you're the paddy. You get these great deaths. I've got, got a little be... list. Robin Hood, you get an arrow through the neck. Yep. Um, in yep. Stardust, you drown, but in, yep. a, in a really cool way. Drown in a floating cool Michelle, way. Michelle yeah. Pfeiffer does that to you. Uh, to end all wars, you were crucified. Yes. <laughs> yeah, hey. hey, hey. There's not a lot of people apart still... from me and another certain person <laughs> who we won't mention who <laughs> can claim that. Uh, no, no, and then Kick-Ass, I get blown off a Manhattan balcony with a bazooka. I mean, that, that is another feature, is that you get, uh, yeah, yeah, you get to sort of have spectacular deaths and moments actually mm. in films. Well, so. one of one that's gone a bit viral recently with Kingsman, the the, the singing, yes, that's just yeah. fantastic. It's yeah, like fantastic. that's got some serious following right now. Just that mm-hmm. that scene in itself is just has really garnered so much attention. It's fantastic. What a, well, what that's a great that's down scene. to Matthew Vaughan because he knows the value of upending your expectations so Merlin you know mm. you would never expect that would happen to him in this particular movie I won't say because it's spoilers although the yeah. film's out but so, you know something amazing happens to him and Matthew knows I think instinctively that that will will please the fans or outrage the fans but certainly it'll it, it's memorable mm. but in Stardust the same you know is true uh, Rupert Everett who is the eldest of the seven brothers mm. who's touted constantly by the others who are waiting for him in a particular scene comes marching in the doors throw open he comes marching in you think oh my god it's Rupert Everett and then he gets pushed out of a window <laughs> <laughs> you know and that's classic Matthew yeah so how is Matthew to work with on set because he came from a producing background obviously working with Guy on Lockstock and Snatch yeah, yeah. and suddenly he was thrust in to make it well Layer Cake was amazing yeah. uh, and then he carried on with his work what, what's he like as a director and a you know to he's, work he's another interesting director isn't he because he's done a few films that are all quite different so he went mm. from Layer Cake to Stardust mm. to Kick-Ass to X-Men to Kingsman and then Kingsman 2 mm-hmm. so and that's quite a varied uh, group of movies and all of them are successful so <laughs> there's not a lot of directors incredible. who can say that but he I think he just has good taste and he knows what people like to see in a movie mm-hmm. he likes to have fun mm. um, and I think he you know, he spends a lot of time making sure that whatever it is he's putting up there is stuff that he wants to see. But he also understands that emotional connection of characters is important. If you're going to do a fight scene, you better make it pretty amazing. Um, if you're going to do a chase scene, it's got to be amazing. You know, that's what people go to see. And he just mm-hmm. understands that. On set during the day, he's very, he's very collaborative. He doesn't kind of say, you stand here, you do this or you do that. You mm-hmm. come in with your ideas and he'll generally try and incorporate them. That's great. Yeah, he's much more about setting up the the the, the set, the mm. storyline. But then he's really interested to see what actors bring to mm-hmm. every day. And that's something you 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 would embrace because you prepare quite well at home and then bring it to set. Is that yeah, right? okay. I think he likes me and likes working with me because of that. Because mm-hmm. I think he started out, especially with uh, Guy when he was producing for Guy as well, working with a lot of non-actors, people who didn't trust them at that that's stage, right. yeah, didn't really know that they were players. Jason and, Statham wasn't an actor, you know. No, he was an Olympic diver. Diver, that's right, yeah. yeah. So there was, a, and there were a lot of geezers, and, you mm. know, people who hadn't really acted that much. So I think they came through the crucible of working with a lot of non-actors. Mm. And when they started working with actors who knew what they were doing 
Yeah. Certainly Matthew realised the value of that. So he's he's been on a mission ever since, I think, to work with the best people. Mm-hmm. And and he's get, lovely, isn't it? Because it's yeah. not always the case. It's not always a given that they're going to give you that freedom no. and flexibility. No, so, no, so no. Which is a real, <laughs> like, we, like we said earlier on, it's kind of like, mm. let me go, let yeah. me free. Yeah. 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 That's good. Uh, Kingsman 2 is fantastic. It's such a cool film. If you've not seen it, really do go see it. Mark, you're fantastic in it. It's really wonderful. Uh, it's actually someone uh, emailed in this question. Nasty Akim underscore BBC asks, did Merlin survive? Mm. And will we see the love between Ginger and Merlin in Kingsman 3? Well, that's that's two good questions there. Um, so the first part, the Kingsman mm. universe has been created by Matthew and anything can happen. I mean, if Colin Firth can come back having literally been shot in the face, exactly, you can anything can happen. Yeah. And yeah. maybe actually he'll really enjoy the challenge of how to piece Merlin together. <laughs> you know? um, Absolutely. But uh, I, did, I remember Matthew being asked that question on one of the events and he said and if you look closely what you actually see is him step and then you see something exactly you don't know what you don't actually him. see mm. yeah the result of that so certainly it's open and okay. i think also who knows the franchise could become the kind of thing where you know people will enjoy the learning how yeah. somebody comes back from mm. what's seemingly an impossible situation so there's that <laughs> okay uh what was the other part of the that love, question? love uh, romance between well we had a whole you know that was a whole storyline in this current movie uh, that uh, ginger halle berry's character and merlin sort of had were sweet on one another and mm. uh uh in fact we kissed uh, oh, that was all shot that how whole nice thing. yeah yeah you were right that, yeah, 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 it was uh, yeah. it was quite a moment for me, and it was tragic. <laughs> the thought that that I mean, in the end, I think when Matthew put the film together, it was something like four hours long. So there right. was a lot of stuff that went. Okay, and one of the things was um, that love story, just because there were other things that you had to kind of get on with, and that that happens in every movie, mm. of course it does. Um, but he did talk <clears throat> about possibly uh, doing a director's cut. Okay, you know, a long director's cut mm-hmm. for diehard fans who wouldn't mind. That the thing was, I don't know, three hours yeah. long or something. Yeah, I'd well, watch that. Well, sure. there you go. I mean, I would think well, commercially, you can't release a movie that that's long, mm-hmm. that's no, as long as that. The studio won't stand for it, and um, it's just not viable. But but uh, you know, if you were to do a special release of your of your director's cut and mm-hmm. include all of that stuff, he he said that it was certainly a possibility, right? Which would then also inform because we shot. Merlin coming back. Right. That was another bit that got left out. Really? Yeah, yeah. Ah, so, okay. you know, I came crawling back. Uh, right, oh, so, we, so it <laughs> is true. Yes, right, okay. Yeah, yeah. So there's a genuine possibility that uh, right. he may be back. Right, I love that. Nice. Um, the difference between working with someone like Danny Boyle, who's one of my favourite directors ever, I love Danny Boyle, and I hope you're going to say nice things about him. Um, <laughs> you might not. And then working with uh, someone like Guy Ritchie, What's the difference in styles there? Obviously, you mentioned one sort of more laddie, but with Danny Boyle, you know, working on Sunshine, how was that? Guy came from um, videos, I think in the 80s. Do you remember music videos sort mm-hmm. of? And they'd be, he'd be given 500 quid and said, right, go and make a music video. <laughs> so his okay. talent came from being able to make very little go a long way. Mm. And if you look at those early films, there's some amazingly inventive stuff going on with, uh, you know, plane journeys that cross the Atlantic being done in seconds it's brilliant that. because it's Love speeded it. up you know little Clever. touches like mm-hmm. that um, and I think all that came from the invention that he had to um, uh, find when he was making music videos um, Danny is is much more considered he he uh, he is very hot on script mm-hmm. on pre-production 
getting everything sorted before you go into production. He doesn't like things in the last minute, I don't think. Um, or it didn't strike me that he did. And funny enough, Danny's the only person I've done a play and a television film and a film with. Because mm. um, I originally did a play with him back in uh, 1988. Wow, okay. At the Almeida, you wow. know, when he was a theatre director. Mm. So he comes from that world. Mm. You know, um, a good script, preparation, mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, he's very dynamic, Danny, on set, you know, really tries to fire people up. Come on, come on, let's go, three, two, one, action, you know, get it really Great, moving. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, everybody's different. They're all different. I mean, Polanski told terrible gags. That's what I remember. That was his thing, telling really bad jokes. Um, Ridley, Ridley Scott loves to just be, like, in the center of the mayhem. Mm-hmm. I remember once we did a shot on Robin Hood, 15 cameras we had. Uh, 15 wow. cameras and each camera obviously had its own unit Use, yeah. we had a ca- we had a car with a Russian arm on it which is a piece of technology that focuses a camera and even though the car is moving the camera is laser guided onto the thing that it's meant to be shooting so we had one of them 15 cameras I remember he was in a horse box Ridley with 15 monitors <laughs> and a walkie talkie same time and each wow. of the camera monitors had the name of the operator underneath it. And he'd be looking at it and saying into the walkie-talkie, you know, John, up a bit, Steve, put a different lens on, Chris, shoot the feet, whatever, you know. And he would Incredible. love to just be like the general in the middle of the mayhem. Oh, yeah. vision. He'll probably yeah. do all right, Ridley. Yeah, but also oh I remember when, we, when, when he, he was showing me a sequence in which he had my double riding off on a horse and he wanted to show me how that was going to work mm-hmm. in the middle of the battle. So they did a sequence with all 15 cameras running and there were so many people on that set. I think we had something like 1,500 people um, for lunch, one of the producers told me. (laughs) 75 trailers, I think, 200 stuntmen and a bunch of 100 horses. And it was so big, that whole set, that you couldn't hear the first AD say action and cut. They just had one of those klaxons. And when it went, (laughs) everyone just started acting. And when it went, (laughs) you all stopped. It was was that big. So anyway, he shows me the sequence with with this guy riding off and 15 cameras. And uh, it was just phenomenal from from chaos. Mm -hmm. Suddenly everything focused and each of those cameras was doing something really interesting because obviously very talented cameramen. And while it was happening, Ridley was pointing occasionally at at a camera at a moment so he was watching every all and pointing and i i didn't realize what he was doing until i saw that there was a, 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 a his assistant was taking notes and basically he was editing as he was oh, going along i love it he's going yeah that camera cut 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 yeah, like yeah, a tv live like tv and then we'll yeah. use that and then we'll go there and that one and that one and just editing Incredible. 15 <laughs> live cameras as he went along that's amazing he doesn't give too much direction to actors as far as i know he's no. much more Go, yeah, you know what you're doing, get on with it, right? Yeah, That's yeah. the kind of guy he is. Yeah, yeah. Which he must... likes to take care of the hardware. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Which must be nice in some way because then you're free to do what you want, but sometimes sure. you just like to be t- just told a little bit whether you're on the right track. Sure. Yeah. Although he, sometimes you come in and like do an extra button up on your coat or something. <laughs> So tiny little <laughs> details like that, he would notice. Right. Incredible. Maybe that's why Blade Runner is so beautiful. And he's, most of his films are so beautiful, you know. Yeah. I actually can't name one that isn't. Body of Lies. I, was, I, was, mm. I thought that was fantastic, by the way. It was fantastic. And a really interesting, another good example of a diverse performance from you. I mean, it's like a... Well, I suppose you've done something similar Thank in you. Syriana, haven't you? In terms of the yes. Middle Eastern yeah. type yeah, of thing. For some but, reason. I mean, you were saying, why the bad guys? I suddenly had a whole group of Arabic characters that came yeah. my way. But, you know, as an actor, you want to play something you're not so body of lies was a fantastic opportunity i I must admit when when i got the call from Ridley to go in for an audition for it i I just thought this is ridiculous hang on this is 
something's gone wrong here. Mm-hmm. I'm going in to play the head of the Jordanian Secret Service. <laughs> you know, a guy called Hani Salam. Yeah. Like, get a boy from North London. Sure, yeah. You know, that's do. what we do. I just yeah. didn't believe for a second. Mm. But I realised subsequently what the what the issue was. They either cast an Arabic character who could, because he was an Anglophile, this character. Mm. You either cast an Arabic character who could play the English part or an English guy to do the Arabic part mm. and it was one or the other and I think there was another guy he had in the frame who was an Arabic actor who'd been in a film called The Kite Runner um, but Great when he came guy. in for the audition I think he was only about four foot tall or something so <laughs> as right. DiCaprio and everyone else he's six foot, foot too, he, he couldn't yeah. he couldn't cast him so yeah. maybe that's why I got the job yeah. that was a fantastic performance it was so despite the fact I mean through the years you've worked with some big names and you've you've had amazing success and congratulations for it all thank it was, you was from an outsider's perspective, I can't imagine turning up on set with Ridley Scott, Russell Crowe, DiCaprio. Was that a moment where you were just thinking, what's going on here? Totally, totally. In fact, my wife was about to give birth to my second boy and I turned the film down, Body of Lies, I, I, when it first came through because he, mm. I wanted to be at home for the birth of... Uh, of my boy and it was my wife who said are you nuts you've got to get off you go anyway in she's a producer so in in classic producer style she contrived to have the baby the day before i was due to travel Amazing. <laughs> so yeah. i was present Genius. at the birth of my son which was great but then the next day the very next day i mean so i was there you know in the hospital with her i literally went from the hospital to the plane flew to morocco and that evening in fact not next day that evening i was sitting around a table with ridley russell and leonardo and we they opened a bottle of champagne and we wet the baby's head. Oh, lovely. And that was just surreal. Mm. Must have been. Going from the birth of my son to Morocco to sit around a table with those three guys and then uh, drink a glass of champagne. Which which was better? (laughs) (laughs) Be honest. No, no, I keep that that to myself. But it was, was, uh, yeah, it was pretty amazing. And it was great working with people of that calibre because, you know, you learn so much from them because they've just done it. Mm. And DiCaprio's so intense and he he works so hard. I've always loved his... Even back to Basketball Diaries, where he proper gives a performance. He doesn't care if the spit comes out of his mouth. Mm. He, he doesn't care about being pretty. He gives a performance, a real performance. Yeah. Did you see that on set? Was it the same thing? He just comes in and delivers? What I did see, actually, which made me realise he really is a proper actor, is a lot of those A-list guys can't play subservient. Mm. And his character had to be subservient to mine in the film. This guy, Mark Strong, turning up playing this Jordanian guy we have a scene together in which i'm i'm the man Mm -hmm. and he gave me the space you know he didn't kind of sit there trying to outact me didn't go to ridley and go hang on hang on why are you giving this guy his own close-up it should be on me or whatever he didn't do any of that he literally he played it as it should be played which was that in the moment his character was beholden to mine and Mm -hmm. uh, not all of those a-list guys would be happy to do that Mm. so interesting he's a proper actor it's really that's lovely Good. I like that because I like I like I've never met the man, but I like him. I like what he stands I for. Like and it's nice to hear yeah. that he's a good guy. He's yeah. good. He's, well, we're big animal advocates and yeah. uh, charity workers in that, and he does all that as well. So yeah. that's another reason. He, why he, like he struck him. me as normal as you can possibly be in the light of you know his fame and his wealth. Yeah. But he's about his feet are pretty much on the ground. I like that. And, right. and how come you've never produced? There's not you've never had a credit as producer. I mean, you probably have. I mean, but in terms of well, is that a reason? Or directed, or or written? Mm-hmm. And the truth is. I don't know when I did, when I walked into that room back in Munich in the day 
the the workshopping acting element was the bit that I enjoyed. You know, I, I don't have brothers and sisters. I grew up kind of without a family, without getting too deep about it. But I spent most of my young life looking at the world, working it out, where I fit in the firmament of things and who I admired and who I believed and mm. trusted and who I didn't. And so I kind of, manif- I, you know, there wasn't a dad around to compare myself to or be told what to do. There wasn't brothers to, to compare myself to or even sisters or anything. There was no one. Mm. So I had to work it out for myself. And I think walking into that room and seeing these people create characters, there was a, that, that's what I'd sort of been doing all my life. What I don't particularly want to do, and so I see myself as an interpreter. Mm. That's what I liked. I love getting a script on the mat, picking it up and going, oh my God, I can do something with that. You know, reading a character that's been written and thinking, I I know how to do that or I know what I want to do with that. Generating it doesn't seem to be anything that I've discovered yet. I mean, never say never. Mm. But I'm much more interested in playing the parts than I am in writing them or directing other people doing them. Okay. (laughs) That's that's a fair enough answer. I mean, yeah. yeah. We've both jumped to the other side. I, I much prefer. I love the, the the creativity of that, and I can yeah. create something from scratch, and it yeah. becomes something. I love that. I can see how it must feel if it's yours. I mean, I'm often mm. envious of, of of a director when they have a movie that they they get to take it away. They get to choose the music, like you were talking mm-hmm. about that music you heard and thought, "Well, I've got to make it." For, you know, I'm envious of the idea that you can literally decide. Yeah. What part of the shot, which shot you use, how you how you put the whole thing together. Yeah. But um. You know, maybe maybe one day. Okay. I have to be, I have to say, I mean, for me personally, making that leap over was was really for the sole purpose of creating more work as an actor. Mm. That was always that was the, so I can I kind of uh, it resonates with what you're saying about it was that yeah. creative process of acting mm. that really pushed your buttons and it's it's still the same for me. It's just that I, I figure I'll just I'll write the the scene, I'll write the film, and I'll try and produce it so that I. I definitely get the role. Right. Exactly. <laughs> okay. Yeah, right. it used to be the same with me. I, that's how I first right. started to look at that as yeah, well, yeah. to say, well, I can get some parts for myself and sure. then realised I love directing and that whole side of it. I don't suppose you need to go find parts for yourself at the moment. <laughs> but in a way, you see, <laughs> you know, touch wood, again, you, you, you think that people, what makes you better is your, your, is hitting a brick wall and overcoming it mm. or failing and improving. And, mm. you know, that's actually, you need that in life. And I think that moment I had back then in Germany when I realized I was making a huge mistake and, and changed my life around mm. in, and it was, it had massive ructions in my, my, my world, you know, the, to make this choice. I've not, I've been such a like I said, I've been lucky since, and I haven't had anything that has forced me to look for another option. And in a way, maybe you're lucky in the sense that you have been able to find another option or look at another way of doing something because you have to. Mm-hmm. And it makes you better as a result. I mean, I'm still relatively lazily being offered parts and taking them sure. rather than thinking about how maybe I should write something. Maybe I should produce or direct. Mm-hmm. Mm, so maybe I'm just being lazy and you're not. <laughs> and it must be interesting to see Liza do it as well. Obviously, your wife producing yeah. and you see her do that side and think, yeah, no, I don't fancy that. I'll just stay this side. Well, having said that, we watched a, a Norwegian TV series together that we really liked and she said to me i wonder if anyone's got the rights and i said what do you mean she went well whether anyone's got the rights to make the english language version of this i went probably surely they have haven't they she went i don't know i'm going to find out i went wow how'd you do that Hmm. so she basically just rang them up they said come and visit us in oslo she said you come in and i went uh yeah (laughs) so we went over there we had a meeting with these guys we sat around and they gave us the rights i think anonymous content we're chasing in this massive company in the states but they gave us the rights to make the english language version and having said all of the, what I've just said, I am co-producing 
this thing. Amazing. But I said to her, what does that exactly mean? She says, <laughs> basically, you just help me make it. <laughs> and in whatever way I can be useful, right. I will be. So if that makes me a producer, then... then Technically, yeah. that's it. Yeah, I am put things together, producing yeah. something. Yeah, congratulations. Thanks very much. <laughs> I'm, not sure I'm, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure how much I'm producer. I'm not sure how much I'm actually going to sure, sure. end up doing, but uh, you know, it's a nice idea. Yeah. Um, and just before we wrap up, there's a couple of questions from uh, the filmmakers podcast family. Uh, Tony Cook asks, he was on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. What makes you choose one role over another? If I can do something with it, okay. If I can be memorable in the part. Because I believe that there are four, five moments in a movie that people come out talking about where they go, what about that bit where, or wasn't that bit great where? And if you're in one of those, mm. you're in the movie. Yeah. Right. So if you can create a character that does something exceptional, like we were saying, Merlin in Kingsman 2 is yeah. a memorable yeah, yeah. moment. Even if he doesn't do anything else in the movie, yeah. he's in the movie. Yeah. So, right. yeah. yeah. Good answer. Nice. So Seranis, at Seranis asks... This may not be something that's relevant to you, but asks any tips on dealing with performance anxiety. I think she's referring to f- in film mm. rather than, <laughs> any, <laughs> rather than anything else. Yes. I think. Well, <laughs> or a football pitch. Um, that is a really uh, fascinating question. And, um, you know, you're joking about it to do with film. I had it to do with stage. I just did, I, I recently did a play called A View from the Bridge. And, you were uh, amazing in the, it. Uh, I saw it, yeah. It won a Tony much. Award as well for that, didn't you? Thank you. Well, nomin- I got nominated, nominated for a Tony Award. And uh, <coughs> again, whatever that's worth. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? Who knows? Uh, but it's nice to be recognised. Yeah. Um, we did it at the Young Vic, we did it in the West End, we did it on Broadway. But I was terrified. Really? Terrified uh, leading up to putting that play on at the Young Vic. Not just nerves, this is something completely different. This was this was major uh, performance anxiety, and I looked it up online, and I talked to people about it, and I, wow. I had to work out techniques and things to try and make it work. And the truth is, um, the only way you can really deal with it is to understand what anxiety is, and as it comes for you, not it just just move it to the side somehow. There is a, there is a mental meditative technique that can help, um, but really, part of I've always described acting as fear management. Mm. you know part of the job is dealing with that anxiety and a little bit of anxiety or nerves are useful because it focuses you but when it's really big and i had it bad um you've just got to work out techniques for yourself to to try and cope with it and i did it by meditating like that very interesting yeah Yeah. that's Hmm. really interesting so we have a question from wag 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 oh yeah (laughs) nice Which is, if you had to spend the rest of your life on a desert island with three of the characters you've played, hmm. I mean, you probably ask this all the time. <laughs> who would who would it be? Well, that, that there's there's two part there's two issues to that question. Is that I, I wouldn't choose the mental ones, obviously, because you've got to spend your time on a mental <laughs> island with them, yeah. on on a desert island with them. <laughs> Under a mental island. <laughs> but the truth is, you know, my favourite characters are the ones that are the craziest ones. Yeah, mm. to be honest. But I wouldn't spend time on a desert island with them. So Merlin's a lovely guy. Merlin's I mean, lovely. He yeah. could certainly be around. Um, uh, he could probably build stuff as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Harney. I mean, he was uh, kind of Harney cool. might be good. You know, he'd, he'd be, be resourceful. pretty useful. Yeah, yeah. Catching fever pitch maybe because of his his funness, his enthusiasm. His enthusiasm. But, but they're all they're funness. all they're all <laughs> crazy in one way or another. I'm not sure I'd want to spend actually any time. <laughs> Anyway, never mind any of them, which is why I choose to play them because it's yeah. like yeah, yeah. it's be like therapy. Yeah, yeah, it's therapy. Yeah, it's exactly. therapy. Exactly. Love that. And um, final question: Emotionally fourteen, one of the podcasts in a, a Brit Pod scene asks, "Have you ever been approached for Bond, and would you be interested if you were?" 
No, I was approached to play a Bond baddie a mm. while back. I had to go into a, do an audition with Barbara Broccoli and Debbie McWilliams, and uh, I, I I cocked it up. Really? I was so yeah, it was way back, and I was so nervous. I I'd learnt the scenes, and I'd done all the work and everything, and I got in there, and I just I didn't deliver in the moment and they were really kind of lovely and beautiful and relaxed and uh, I just it was one of those days where it didn't come together and uh, it was a big lesson actually from uh, made me kind of improve my, my technique auditioning technique because I, I think I thought I knew it perfectly and I didn't mm. and so preparation 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 is what it's all about uh, but no Bond no no yeah. love to play a baddie though mm. the Bond yeah. baddie I think he's iconic, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Oh, that would be fun. Okay. All right. It's good to know. Amazing. Um, Mark, thank you so much for your time. Um, finally, a little piece of advice for yeah. wannabe filmmakers, actors, whatever you want to put in there. Hmm. Actors and filmmakers, anyone trying to get into our industry, piece of advice. It's very tricky because I, I have been very lucky and I defy anybody who's managed to achieve anything in, the, in this business uh, mm-hmm. I defy anyone to say that there's not an enormous amount of luck. It's the only thing is don't become bitter. Don't let it grind you down. Don't feel when you're reading about other people in magazines, you're watching the success of others that somehow they've had it and you haven't. It's, mm-hmm. it's not healthy. It doesn't help. You've just got to accept that all you can really do is move forward and do the best that you can um, with your own talents and abilities and just just realize that it doesn't owe you anything it just exists and if you're lucky enough to get involved with it then then you've you've done really well but in my experience i've no idea why i've i've managed to you know, I have, I have a little bit of that survivor's guilt. You know, the idea that there's a sort of dinghy and there's eight of you in it and only one makes it to land. And that guy feels terrible. All the people I was at university with who, who wanted to do what I do and, and haven't been able to sustain a career and all the people at drama school. Mm-hmm. And, and pretty much that's most of the people. There's only a handful of us got through like those turtles on the beach, you know, when yeah. they hatch and have to mm-hmm. run to sea. Mm-hmm. Some, some kind of get through and some don't. Um, mm-hmm. And all you've got to do is just hang in there. I mean, that's that's not really satisfying advice, but it's the truth. It's great that's advice. Great advice. It's beautiful. It really is. I have to say this. With the question about performance anxiety and that point you just made about cocking up an audition for Debbie McWilliams and, mm. and, uh, and Ms. Broccoli, Broccoli. Yeah. Mm. thank you so much for that honesty. Mm. So I think that's so insightful and so important, so valuable to the people listening to this because that's, that's a nice sort of a humility and lack of ego that you wouldn't necessarily expect in someone who has done as well as you've done. So thank you for that. That's very well, nice that's partly linked to what I was saying about, you know, the things, your failures make you better, your, the mistakes yeah. you make make you better. They really do. I mean, that's no revelation. Everybody knows that. But it is actually, in my case, true. I've genuinely found that the, the moments where I've, I've, I've not done what I thought I should be doing has actually improved me. Gotcha. Beautiful. If you've enjoyed listening to this, please like, share, subscribe to our iTunes, download as much as possible, and, and, and write us a nice review. All right, Dan? Yeah, right. And um, I'm really excited about the next bit that's coming up where we go, where can we follow you on social media? And th- we all know the answer to that <laughs> with Mark. You can't. Where can we follow you on social media, Mark? I have absolutely no social media presence. Uh, <laughs> it's my active choice, mm-hmm. I'm afraid. I'm a bit yep. of a dinosaur like that. But actually, it, it comes from somewhere where... I'm an actor. I play characters. And if you're going to believe me in a film or a piece of TV or on so stage, true. why do you need to know what I'm having for breakfast every day? Yeah. Right. 
you're asking people to suspend their disbelief. I wonder whether a time will come, actually, where I will become a man of mystery. And that will be something that people have lost because they've literally had to broadcast every waking thought mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. social media. Yeah. And uh, yeah. to become somebody who people know not a great deal about will have value. It makes you Absolutely. more mysterious and Maybe. interesting. Maybe. It's healthier Maybe. too. <laughs> yeah. But but do follow us online. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, speaking of which, you can follow me at Giles Alderson. At Dan Seven Tenths. And you can follow the Filmmakers Podcast at Filmmakers Pod or www.thefilmmakerspodcast.com. Go to iTunes, go to SoundCloud. We are now on Acast as well, which is absolutely superb. Now remember, being prepared is everything. You can make your indie film, but know who your audience is and get out there and do it. And remember, if you're lucky enough to do well and rise up, it's your duty to send the elevator back down. Till next time. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Such an awesome exit, man. Yeah. Dude.